0: So we are back for another week. Um, Hillary's really been demanding that we talk about this week's topic. I remember when we started the podcast uh, almost two years ago or a year and a half ago, she was like, when are we going to do our baseball
1: episode? I just don't think that's ever come out of my mouth before, but <laughs> can't what I'll say is I'm excited we're doing it today because today's Jackie Robinson Day.
0: Well, yes. I mean, it's kind of funny. It worked out in many different ways. It like
1: uh,
0: I think I think it's a great topic because I think like many things we talk about on this program, it's a great segue into so many elements of American society. Baseball can be a springboard into a discussion of so many things and Um, yeah, it's, it's, this should be fun. Um, I'm not going to try to be too baseball nerdy today.
1: I hope Um, you have some sounds loaded up.
0: Well, I decided not to, because there's a lot I want to talk about. Um, I have a good 30 pages of research notes I'd like to get through today. I
1: have a lot too. I mean, I, (laughs) I I wasn't expecting to get so I wouldn't say into it because I was never really into it but like I didn't expect to be like wow there's a there's a lot to talk about I mean we can easily go an hour so let's get started
0: we will we will we will uh not go much over an hour today so yeah let's get to it welcome to an incomplete history I'm Hillary and I'm Jeff
1: and we're your hosts for this weekly history podcast
0: So before we get into baseball, let's get a little weather update.
1: Nice weather today. Nothing nothing exciting to report. I would say the pollen is out of control. Um, that's It's about time for that.
0: Yeah. No tornadoes?
1: No, none today. Um, it's high 60s, sunny. Nice day out. Just pollen well, everywhere, and that's about it. But what about you?
0: Well, it got cold yesterday.
1: Why? Well- <laughs> It got rainy cold. yesterday too, right?
0: It got rainy as well. It was cold and rainy and kinda of yucko, um which is not typical. I mean, April weather for us should be pretty clear and warm. Uh it gets should get cool at the night and nights, but just like yeah. And today it's kinda of, eh. I mean the sun's coming out, but um looks
1: like it's gonna be pretty hot for you this weekend. Could be time for the beach. Looks like it's going to be about 80.
0: Uh, Yeah. Although the water will be like 55 degrees.
1: Oh, well, no, I didn't say go in the water. Just like walk around. Yeah.
0: Well, that's, I mean, Southern California, if you come to Southern California, the only people in the water who are locals are surfers and people scuba diving.
1: If you want to go swimming in California, bring a wet. You fly to Hawaii. No, bring a wetsuit because it's not pleasant. And the water's nasty. I'm sorry. I just, yeah. Or you
0: you fly to Hawaii.
1: Definitely fly to Hawaii.
0: (laughs) So baseball, the national American pastime, our national pastime. You were very skeptical about this topic.
1: Skeptical of it. I just don't, I'm not, it's not compelling to me.
0: Is it compelling now that you've done research?
1: No, no. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I know a lot about, so here's the thing. My parents are huge, huge baseball people. And one of the very first things I ever did as a kid was went to the baseball hall of fame in Cooperstown, New York. Oh, wow. When I was probably seven years old. And I was, you know, the little dork going around reading all the little things. And I mean, like, I, I have come from a really baseball interested family. We have season tickets. Um, I follow it sort of just so I can talk sometimes with my dad, like the Padres threw no hitter the other night. Like, I follow it. I pay attention to it. I just don't really care about it. Um, and I guess that could be a good place to start is like, well, Cooperstown is all just a big myth because the whole idea that like one person invented baseball is just patently false and that it comes out of just one place is also false right so the idea that Abner Doubleday developed baseball in the 18 what was 1830s they say that's it's Hoku it's hokum. it's
0: it's it's not true
1: we fell into a tourist trap apparently when we <laughs> went to Cooperstown back in 1990. Well, five or something.
0: But the United States is a young nation and we like to create myths about the origins of things that we hold dear. And and I think that by making Doubleday an American, having created this sport, it it makes it simply an American pastime. And it's just not. It's it's intimately connected with European games, children's games. Mostly. Bat
1: and ball games. Yeah. That children played. Yeah. So I like that aspect of it where – we, we circle back to this a lot in this podcast where we talk about myth and the, you know, kind of our national obsession with creating history, creating myths, like this nationalistic um, approach to try to make things dear to us. And baseball is a really, really good example of one of those things where we like to talk about it as being uniquely American. But you're right. It's just, it's not. It, it develops over time. Um, What I would say, though, is like Americans are the ones who create baseball as we see it today. And the rules and the parameters for it, et cetera, that we see today, um, that does come out of the United States in the 19th century.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's when you go to a ballpark today or when you turn on ESPN or wherever you're watching baseball, the game you see today is very much a product of the United States. And, and I would argue it is only the United States could have created. It was like the perfect point to like put these various pieces together um, and end up with this thing, modern baseball as we play it. But baseball itself, it's origins. So it's like, so you've got the Cooperstown myth, but then you've got kind of the reality, and uh, there hasn't actually been a huge amount of research on baseball until the relatively recent past, because people were just kind of accepted the myth, and they were like, well, that's obviously how it happened. And people started chipping away at that. So there's this game in England called Rounders. And if you read the rule for round- rules for Rounders, they certainly sound a lot like baseball, and we know Rounders is played in Tudor England.
1: It's a children's game though. That's what I Except think.
0: Except in Ireland. Okay. In Ireland, it is a men's game. It's it's a game for adult men to play, which is very interesting. But it's in England, it's it's very it was very much a children's game. And it's you had four bases, and you would hit a ball that was thrown to you, and you ran around the bases. It, very similar to baseball. But it's also very similar to games from other parts of Northern Europe. I mean, there, there's this Norse game that gets played that sounds a lot like baseball as well. So, I, you know, modern baseball may have had its direct antecedent was rounders, but that doesn't mean that it didn't also draw on other things in Europe. But it's it definitely starts out as not an American game because we actually know – Um, we have English colonists in the colonies playing baseball.
1: Yeah, and um one of the things about it though is that you know it it's not an official like league professionalized game. It's like played on farms and it's kind of a rural thing to do. Um, and the rules are loose depending on where you are, depending on who's playing. It's kind of like a pickup game wherever you are, like you kind of just make the rules depending on what region you're in. And what starts happening is, yeah, we do have references all the way back into the mid 18th century, so the mid 1700s, about baseball being played. Um, and it's it's a well known like if if someone says baseball, like they know what they're talking about. I mean, I think that mm-hmm. in some Jane Austen novels, right? There's talk.
0: Of it gets reference. Yeah, thing.
1: people understand the reference. Um, and so. But it depends where you are. And what ends up happening by the mid-19th century is that you have two versions of baseball that are kind of accepted and played. You have a New York version of baseball, which takes hold as being the most popular form. And then you have the Massachusetts version, which is a little more rowdy and, in my opinion, a little more fun.
0: Well... So before we get to that, I want to make I want to make a bold claim, and it's not an original claim because historians who have studied baseball kind of make this claim as well. Rounders in the baseball game that resembled be- rounders and kind of this rural version is very pre-industrial. It rejects virtually everything that the later versions are going to embrace. Um, clear set of rules, um, uh, a precise ordering and structuring of kind of what the field should look like and how the game's played, um, a hierarchy within the team, all of these things, and, and eventually commercialization of the game. I mean, it's baseball is fundamentally transformed by industrialization, by, by capitalism and industrialization.
1: And by assembling... And
0: and by gambling, I mean, this is, so here's the great thing. I was, I read an article about Pete Rose. Pete Rose is like, Pete Rose is the shoeless Joe Jackson of my generation. Um, kind of drummed out of baseball and, and banned for life and all this stuff because of gambling. Uh, gambling has always been a part of baseball. Always. Um, the Black Sox scandal, and we can talk about that a little bit later, was simply that it became so egregious and obvious that there was a decision that needed to be addressed. And it was also, it also occurred at a moment where Americans were really obsessed with moral purity.
1: Well, and also obsessed with, yeah, the moral purity, but just hating gambling, right? I mean, like there's been a lot of, and we've talked about this several different times where like, alcohol, gambling, prostitutes, like they all kind of fall under this umbrella in the late 19th century. It's just these societal ills. And so the idea that baseball starts getting tied up in um, gambling scandals kind of upsets everybody. But arguably, nobody cared about baseball until you could put money on it. It was just a backyard game that you played. It was, like you said, there's no rules. There's nothing set. It's pre-industrial. And it's not until it's brought into the cities and starts becoming more official and they start making rules and they start putting money on it that people even pay attention. So it's kind of like a catch 22. It's like, well, people aren't going to pay attention to the game unless they can bet on the game. That's what we see.
0: That's, that's the argument, right? Um, So you brought up this early split between the New York model and the Boston model. So, Tell us a little bit about the distinction, because I, I think it's interesting, because as somebody who lived in New York for years, and as a Yankees fan, yes, I, I'm a fan of the evil empire, um, we view that team that plays in Boston in a very specific way.
1: Like hoodlums, probably? Yeah. Yeah. Well, because the way that they play, I mean, they obviously have to play by the rules now of the MLB, but... Um, the Massachusetts version of the game, which dates back into the 18th century and then into the 19th century as well, um, was played very differently. Uh, you know, New York sh- sets out all these rules where there's actually a field of play. There um, is a-, a certain number of men allowed on the field. There's a certain number of strikes allowed before the batter's out. There's a certain length between bases, which is 90 feet. Um, and you kind of have this 999 rule that, uh, comes out. And that's not Herman Cain's tax plan. It's related to baseball, where you have nine innings, nine men on the field, and 90 feet between each base. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Massachusetts version has none of that. And the main difference between the two, though, is like the violent nature of the Massachusetts version, where like, to throw somebody out, you threw the baseball at their body, like you pegged them when the you know with the baseball.
0: Well, it was one way you could throw them out, and I and I'm glad you I like, that, that, up. Way. I well, like that way. I like you bring I, that you bring that up because that's that's something that unites all baseball up to a point. Um, rounders baseball one way to get somebody out was to chuck the ball at them, and if it hit them, they were out.
1: They, yeah, and, and the ball used to be bigger too, by the way.
0: And that starts well the <laughs> I. I went down a research hole about the history of the ball I itself. I
1: too. The ball's insane. I it's can't wait fascinating. That yeah. Um,
0: yeah, that dirty but it ball. it was
1: different. It was different. It was a little softer, a little bit bigger. But it's still, I mean, it would hurt like hell to get like hit. Like kill the, the guy. Head. Well, someone well, died, right?
0: Someone died, which, oh which resulted in a rule change. But what's interesting is this is, is modern rules get created – Um, And are usually credited with, to the New York Knickerbockers.
1: Which is like the Um, precursor to the Yankees or something, right? That's
0: the very. Oh, I mean, the Yankees like to tie their history to the Knickerbockers. I don't think it's that straightforward. But what I think is interesting is the Knickerbockers are basically a social club for middle class men. And. You know, this is 1845. And one of the things they do is construct this kind of rigid set of rules and a and a hierarchy within the team, um, and uniforms, and it's very industrial, but it's well, also very important though. But it's very gentlemanly.
1: Yes, that's supposed to be like a gentlemanly sport, and it's not ruckus, it's not rowdy, and it's not unpredictable. Because the other thing about Massachusetts was like the bases you could run anywhere (laughs) like you could run anywhere and there's no actual field there's no actual out of bounds and like you'd be chasing people all over the place with the ball trying to hit them with the ball to get them out the only rule was you had to touch all four bases Mm -hmm. at a certain point but like there isn't and like the base is like you're safe at the base but there's there's no rule as to where you can run. So can you imagine how fun it would be to watch that? Like to watch people basically playing tag, all over the place, throwing balls at each other. It sounds like great fun.
0: I mean, I would say it sounds so Boston. Um,
1: <laughs> it sounds so Boston. It's just
0: a free for all.
1: No, it does. It, it, it yeah. That's and, that's a true,
0: America. Well, I mean, here's the thing though, which one of those two models is more commercial?
1: So, yeah, that's what ends up happening. It ends up being like a PR campaign, um, you know, who's going to win out, um, and there is a his- Do you know there's a historian of the MLB, John Thorne. Mhm. Um, and he was really heavily involved in the Ken Burns documentary on baseball and he's written stuff, but he's the official MLB historian. And what his argument is, is like the only reason the New York model ends up beating out the Massachusetts model is just because they had good PR. They they advertised it more. They made it more official rule book kind of stuff. And they just like went forward with a more concerted campaign to organize the sport because it was upper middle class men with money who were organizing it. I thought that would be interesting.
0: I would also argue it's the Civil War.
1: Oh, okay. The Why? New York
0: the new so the New York teams, so you've got these middle class men. And one of the things you do if you're a kind of an aspiring middle class man in New York and the Civil War comes about is you volunteer and you're commissioned as an officer, and you have these working class men you're overseeing. And um, there's this great book by Lorian Fook called "Gentlemen and the Roughs, which has to do with this. Connection between these kind of aspiring middle and upper class men leading these kind of rowdy groups of working class men in these Civil War, you know, and this is the Union forces, right? This isn't in the South. And
1: yeah, the South doesn't have baseball fields.
0: They really don't. They, they really
1: don't. <laughs> they
0: don't know. They don't. Well, And one of the things these gentlemen officers do is instruct these rowdy working class men in baseball, but it's in the New York version of baseball. It's a very ordered, regimented form of baseball. It is not the free-for-all that they're playing in the Massachusetts game. And, I mean, we can see it. Um, 1865, you have about 100 clubs that are members of the first national organization of baseball called the National Association of Baseball Players. 100 clubs in 1865, right at the end of the Civil War. Two years later, 1867, you have 400 clubs. And these are men that are going home after the Civil War and are founding their own clubs wherever they return home to. And we even end up with clubs in California. A mere 17 years after California becomes a state, we have clubs on the West Coast as well.
1: But and, I'd like to point out, though, to talk about the Civil War stuff a little more. is like, there's a there's a legacy to that. Mississippi doesn't have a Major League Baseball team. Alabama does not have a Major League Baseball team. Like, a lot of these states- For years,
0: the- there was only one in the Deep South.
1: What was it? Was it the Atlanta,
0: Atlanta. Atlanta.
1: And they're, I mean, really in the deep, deep South. I mean, like, Houston has a team, yes, but like- where we're talking about like cotton belt, kind of like Mississippi, Alabama, like there's nothing. There are no professional sports teams in these states. And that's why I think college football and college baseball is so big because there isn't a professional sports team to follow. And I think that that's directly related to the Civil War.
0: I think so. Well, there's a huge cultural split. And and here's the thing
1: is that Baseball's not the Confederate pastime.
0: No, it's not. It, it's Yankees. I mean, it's what Yankees do. Uh, but this NABBP, the National Association of Baseball Players, they actually sanctioned professional play. And the very first team that is still in existence today is created, the Cincinnati Red Stockings.
1: Red Stockings. Isn't that so cute?
0: <laughs> the Red Stockings. Yes. So cute. Um. And at that point, by 1869, the game really does look very similar to what we're eventually going to get. But there are some notable differences. There's differences with the ball. There's also differences with gloves. Gloves don't, aren't on the field
1: yet. They don't have gloves. <laughs> they don't have gloves. That is also so exciting. <laughs> it's just so primitive. I mean, they're just out there. Barehanded, what? picking up well, this dirty, nasty ball.
0: Well, the person I feel most sorry for with the no gloves is the
1: catcher. Oh heck yeah! Well, and at this time, the pitcher was the most important person on the team because you didn't really have a need for like the what they end up calling the sluggers that come about like during the era of Babe Ruth in the nineteen twenties, because hitting wasn't as important.
0: It well, was this was pitching. these were low scoring games.
1: It depends because they used to play to twenty one. Right, that was the original point
0: of. They were very slow games. They were slow. Very slow.
1: It wasn't home run after home run kind of a thing. Well,
0: and a lot of this had to do with the ball. So the ball,
1: like, (laughs) so excited about the ball. Oh my god, the ball! Um, so nasty. It's it's absolutely disgusting. So they used to only use one ball per game. And I learned it's because baseballs are super expensive. $65
0: the, was the equivalent back 92, in the 1870s. I found
1: a statistic that said 19, $92 by the 19-teens. Wow. Right wow. before they changed the rule, it was they were $3 a piece. And they used to have people who were kind of like umpires or like officials of the game who would go find the ball wherever it was and go pick it up, and sometimes it was near spectators, so the ball would be covered in tobacco juice, dirt, sweat, grass, water, grass. It was disgusting. Well, that's
0: the thing, is like, so one of the things you did um that pitchers did is they spitballs were called spitballs because you literally spat on them.
1: Because it so was like imagine- a pitch, right? Right. So
0: imagine you're playing nine innings, and every time that ball before it's pitched, the pitcher's spitting on it. Um, you know, the catcher might give a little bit of his spittle to it as well. It's like, and then it's picking up mud and grass and dirt and all this you stuff. I
1: wonder why everybody was dying so young of diarrhea. <laughs> In the 19th century, I mean, the nastiness of it is like: can you, if one person was sick, can you imagine everybody would end up with cholera or something? You well, know, that but but then,
0: ball. but then it also made the ball hard to see.
1: Yeah, so the brown, the ball would end up brown, and yeah, it was difficult to Which see.
0: Which is super difficult to see, mm-hmm. and then somebody gets killed.
1: Yeah. Because he couldn't see it coming.
0: This poor guy gets hit in the head. I thought I had his name. Now I can't find it. (laughs) Because I was like, this poor guy, I hope he's in Cooperstown. This poor guy gets hit in the head and dies because he couldn't see the ball. And at that point, they're like, yeah, you know, we should probably change this rule. Um, So the rule becomes that the umpire now can replace the ball when he deems it necessary. And the ball changes as well, right? The ball starts off pretty uh, soft and it kind of evolves over time. But we have by the late 1870s, by 1878, we have a ball that Spalding is running ads for its ball. And it's kind of very similar to the modern ball. But it's still very expensive for quite some time. Um, But, again, this is supposed to be kind of an elite sport for kind of middle class men, even if they're professional athletes. So it being a little expensive isn't really seen as much of a problem.
1: So the guy who got hit and died was Raymond Johnson Chapman who was hit by a pitch thrown by Yankees pitcher Carls Made Mays and he died 12 hours later but the spitball thing and the you know like trying to make the ball hard to see and the the concept of a ball like you know not a strike but a ball is kind of a newer concept because the whole idea was just like well if the umpire thinks that you should have hit and you didn't then he'll call a strike but mm-hmm. anything other than that, it's like, we'll just keep throwing the ball. And that's one of the reasons why it would, the game would take so long was because there wasn't four balls and three strikes. It was just like three strikes, but then like lots and lots of balls. And if you hit into the foul, that was not considered a strike. So oftentimes pitchers would try to hit you in the face. Like they would try to hit you and you mm-hmm. try to like move out of the way. Like that was one of the leftover kind of, I think piece of, pieces of like the Massachusetts version um, where it was a little more rough in that way. And so in 1920, you get this major rule change where you're right. Like Spalding comes out with a ball. That's more like it's white. It's bright. You know, it's laced red. Um, And I think that they become a little bit cheaper. And then the umpire puts new balls. And they
0: become harder too. So it's 1910 is the introduction of the cork core baseball, which is what we still use today. And the problem with the old balls, and they called it the dead ball era, because those balls would get softer and softer. I mean, just imagine all that spit and mud when they and everything. Even
1: hit so much, right? Just like crack, 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 constantly. Just and the softer ball, and softer. Yeah, yeah, it is nasty. It would just what well, would lose its yeah, like its strength or something, because it was just being abused for so long. But it was near and dear to their hearts. They didn't want to get rid of it because they cost so much money.
0: So one of the beneficiaries of the transition to this new ball in 1910 is Babe Ruth. And Babe Ruth starts to hit home runs. He starts to knock balls out of the parks. And and we've got a whole parallel history of ballparks and cities and things. But he starts to hit the balls out of the parks And actually the game really picks up again. People are suddenly much more interested in the game because there's stuff happening.
1: Right, and so you get this era of the sluggers because Babe Ruth, as I said earlier, the pitcher used to be the most important person in the game and they would draw the game out and hitting really wasn't like the thing that was winning games, it was the pitching. Um, And Babe Ruth started his career as a pitcher, but pitchers only play every four games because their arms get tired out. They realized once he started being able to hit this, like, what do you say? It's like a cork ball. What's it inside? Mm -hmm. Harder balls. Um, Once they figure out that, like, these guys are hitting it out of the park, he becomes far more valuable as a hitter. And he becomes known as, like, a slugger in that era. And they move him to the outfield. And he stops his career as a pitcher. And then he becomes probably the most famous baseball player of all time because of this ability to hit so many home runs and he kind of transforms the game and people's interest in it. It becomes very exciting to watch someone go and hit the ball so hard. And, and he's kind of a thicker guy. You start seeing like these bigger buffer kind of thicker dudes coming out and playing this sport, um, because of their strength. And so he really changes the game. Not
0: steroids.
1: Probably not.
0: No, not at all. In fact, Babe Ruth drank a lot. Ate a lot, had a lot of sex, had he various venereal baby. diseases. Babe Ruth, like was a this big is boy. this is not some guy that's juicing at all.
1: Can you tell me more about Babe Ruth's venereal diseases?
0: Ah, uh, he was kind of renowned. I mean, he just was a womanizer.
1: It was a renowned venereal disease?
0: Well, it was well known
1: so that he was. Okay, so this is interesting to me because. Now you see kind of the uh I don't know, idealization of base of, of an athlete. Mm-hmm. Like where athletes are kind of like celebrities, right? Because like before that, I mean there weren't celebrity athletes really. Like Babe Ruth's kind of a big deal. Well it was I mean, this is friend.
0: right. I mean, it's uh, you know, we go we can go back a little bit and talk about a couple of things. I mean, one of the things I want to talk about is the um the National League gets founded in 1876. And one of the very first things it does is come to a gentleman's agreement to decide to exclude non white players from professional baseball.
1: Which wasn't the case prior to that. It, the league becomes segregated. Right.
0: And the ban is there till 1947.
1: Right. And this is why we celebrate Jackie Robinson Day because Jackie Robinson. April 15th, 1947 was the first time that an African American player played in the major league.
0: Today. Well, he, it's the first time an African American player played in the major leagues as an African American player.
1: Well, and since the segregation happened.
0: Because some of some black players actually would present themselves as Indian or from Central or South America to get around the ban.
1: But even a lot of the people from Central and South America ended up playing in the, um, the other leagues. And the difference, though, is that the major league was reserved for white people. Mm-hmm. And then every other league below it, like the what we would call now like farm teams or minor league, um, you know, AAA, whatever, that kind of stuff, like all the minor leagues, that's where people of color played. And and it wasn't just Black Americans; it was a lot of you, people from Central and South America. And where a lot of people come from now today to play, like the Dominican Republic, etc., a lot of those people who were playing were in were relegated to the minor leagues, despite any sort of talent or merit. They were just automatically relegated to the minor leagues.
0: So, right. So, um, what happens? like with league play, is we get many, many, at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, we get a multitude of leagues. And they're all competing with what it means to be major league. The National League is the f- first and largest. Um, and it has virtually a monopoly on some East Coast cities. Uh, you get these other ones, including the Union Association, something called the Players League, Which was to take control out of the owner's hands and put them back into the players. Um, But eventually, you get this thing, the Western League, founded in 1893. And the leader, Ben Ben Johnson, really criticizes the National League. And he promises that this new league, this new Western League, is actually going to have the best players and provide the best fields and the best entertainment for people. And the teams they initially start with are in Detroit, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Indianapolis, Kansas City, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Sioux City, and Toledo. So they're all Western. Well, they're Midwestern. But they're all Western compared to the East Coast kind of focus of the National League. Now, eventually in 1900, the league changed its name to the the American League, um, moves franchises around, and eventually, by 1901, they operate as a major league, and we get this World Series that starts to happen between these two recognized major league um, major leagues.
1: What's the first year of the World Series? Well, it's interesting. It's a complicated, you isn't it? Yeah,
0: say that yeah. right. I mean, it's the. It, here's the thing with the world series. If we're talking about the world series in its current iteration of the American league versus national league, it's 1903. However, there was a, uh, another prize that was played earlier in the 19th century. And then there was one called the temple cup series, which was a national league only series from 1894 to 1898. You also had exhibition games that really didn't matter much, except for maybe bragging rights. But I would say nineteen oh three is like the thing we recognize as and the who World wins? Series.
1: Who wins the first World Series, Jeff?
0: Well, I mean, winning the first is nice,
1: <laughs> but winning the most, you're right. But so winning, winning
0: the, the most Boston, is nicer. This is,
1: yeah, this is a, so the Boston,
0: Boston Americans. Yeah. Uh, win the first World Series in 1903. Um, now, what's interesting though is baseball is still really in its infancy at this point. And the second World Series in 1904, the New York Giants yeah. had won the National League. They'd won the National League Championship, but they boycotted the series.
1: Yeah, there was no World Series in 1904. Why did they boycott in 1904?
0: I don't know why did they Why did they boycott, Hillary?
1: I don't know. I'm asking you. (laughs) Why did they boycott? Um, There was no I mean, there was no World Series played because it was Boston again against New York and they were all mad about it. Um, And there was a rivalry between the two leagues. I mean, I think that was almost like they were trying to split off to be their own thing, wasn't it? It was was, um, leagues competing and being mad at one another. And then they said, like, we won. We just won. Like, no, you still have to go to the World Series.
0: Well, that's – Harvey's getting very fired up about this topic. Uh, Well, that's the thing is that that there is not real (laughs) – there's nothing connecting these two leagues at this point other than the fact they've just decided to have this game. At the end And season. then New
1: York's just like, we won. Like, no, but there's still a, a last game to do. No, we won already. I mean, I think it was almost like petty because I think they were intimidated by by Boston being like the reigning champions, right? Um, and then um th- it also has to do with like the Western teams, right? So you have um like rivalry between the leagues from New York, um, and the Giants, and they were declining to meet one another, saying like, oh no, you're the worst league, we're the better league. Um, and the Giants owner, a guy named John Brush, said there will never be a series between the New York-based teams um, of the National League and the American League's New York Highlanders. And so there was a fight going on about like, who was going to reign supreme in terms of league play. And then so when they boycott the series in um when they boycott the series in 1904 it was kind of a way of for New York to just say we we're done it's over because our league is the only league that matters that's kind mm-hmm. of my takeaway from it
0: uh yeah I mean definitely I mean this is the the thing that's going on is it's it's a real mess and it's not until the post-world War one era where things really start to solidify and it And the league structure and the way the World Series carries out and the rules that govern kind of play in interleague play particularly crystallize and become what we recognize today. But I want to talk about 1908.
1: Cubs and Tigers?
0: Cubs and Tigers.
1: Tigers are a very old franchise.
0: They are. They used to be good. They are the only American League franchise out of the original set that didn't relocate. So the Cubs, um, the Cubs and Tigers, uh, prior to 2016, the 1908 championship by the Cubs was the last time they won the championship. So it was 104 years between championships for the, or 108 years for a championship. No. 2016. Yeah. 108 years between championships. So what's really interesting here is September 23rd, 1908, um, the New York Giants and the Chicago Cubs meet to play for the National League Championship Series. So whomever wins this is going to go Uh, to the World Series and play the Detroit Tigers. Um, It had been practice that if it was obvious a player could score, at the end of the game, you could just kind of call the game.
1: Oh, yeah. This is a fantastic incident.
0: So, uh, So this is at the old polo grounds. This was the New York Giants' home field. And this poor guy... Um the runner on first base Fred Merkel who was with the New York Giants and he was a he was a, a a rookie went halfway to second base but it was obvious that the game was over so instead of actually going to second base he sprints to the clubhouse
1: which was a common practice at the time it and- was
0: widely accepted yeah. because fans swarmed the field and he didn't want to be caught up in any of that. Well, what happens is a player for Chicago, Evers, gets the ball and touches second base. There were already two outs, and this was a force out at second base ending wow. the inning of the game. And there was like this, like, wait, you can't do that. You weren't supposed to do that. So the game becomes called Merkel's Boner.
1: I absolutely love that it's called Merkel's Boner.
0: And so it's a tie. It's ruled a tie.
1: And they say that they'll play it again at the end. If, if
0: necessary. If necessary. If, necessary. if yeah. the two teams, so this was before the National League. So this was technically before the National League Championship Series. This was earlier in the season. But what comes down to is at the end, they are tied for first place. So they have to replay this game.
1: Yeah, and the team that had originally won the game ends up losing, um, and the
0: Chicago Cubs win, and they go on to the World Series,
1: all because meet of Marvel. the
0: Tigers. Um, and they won their second consecutive World Series, but then they do not win another one for a hundred and eight years.
1: Isn't that wild? And I don't—I mean, I don't think they deserve to win that one. To be honest, I thought that that whole thing was just egregious, and because the same umpire had ruled differently in a game with the same incident the year prior. Mm-hmm. And then he all of a sudden changes his mind this time. And I get it. Like there has to be a rule and all that kind of stuff. But it's like, be consistent on your calls. And he well, was inconsistent.
0: Is, well, I mean, this period, I think before, shortly before World War I is when we get a lot of scandals that start to rock baseball. So you get the Merkel incident. Um, but then you get the Black Sox scandal. And this involves the Chicago White Sox. This is the most widely known incident of throwing games and betting for money. Um, The problem is we know now that most baseball players were betting on their games.
1: Yeah. Well, and they would throw games all the time because they were making a lot of money. So even though it's professional sports and they were being paid to play – you would have people approach, like, is it like bookies, I guess, approach and mm-hmm. say, if you throw the game, I will pay you twice as much as you make the entire season or more. And this dates way back into the 19th century. And then by the time this Black Sox scandal comes around in 1919, the MLB was far more professionalized mm-hmm. and not willing to stand for this at this point anymore. And it becomes a huge gambling um, scandal.
0: Yeah. So, the Chicago White Sox, the 20 or the nineteen nineteen series or the nineteen nineteen season, were far and away the best team. Everybody uh, widely accepted this team was going to trounce whomever they played in the world in the World Series, and they were heavy favorites to defeat the Cincinnati Red Stockings.
1: I think they were well, the Reds by that time, weren't they? Just the Reds.
0: Uh, were they called the Reds by 1919? Maybe.
1: I love the white the red stockings. I don't know why that went away.
0: So the White Sox lose.
1: Mm-hmm. They were and because there were oh, players that they managed to get out of. Because how many on the field? Nine.
0: Nine. So what? What happens is this: the the series happens. The White Sox lose. And people start wondering and rumors start to circulate that the, the two things were at play. The players were offered money to throw the game. And the other thing was that evidently the owner of the club, Charlie Comiskey, was widely hated by the players. So if you were somebody like Eddie Chicote or Joe Jackson, this was an easy way to – make money and get back at somebody you didn't like.
1: Yeah. And this guy was himself a prominent player back in the 19th century, but the players hated him.
0: Um, He was a
1: jerk toward them and he was really cheap. He wouldn't give, give them a lot of money. Um, And so they, they kind of hatched the scheme first of all, to make themselves make money, but second to kind of get back at Comiskey. Right.
0: So, Several seasons go by as kind of rumors swirl, and it's really kind of sullying baseball's reputation. Remember, I mean, this was a sport that had been packaged as this gentlemanly, really well-organized sport. It wasn't like another up-and-coming professional sport, football, which was viewed as much more working class and kind of rowdy and violent. This gambling thing would not go away, so eventually a grand jury gets called. And Eddie Ciccote and Joe Jacks confess um, in total, eight players are tried. Um, They're acquitted. However, major league baseball doesn't let them avoid penalty. And all eight of these men were banned for baseball for life.
1: Well, and the guys who didn't participate. um, So there were 10 players who were not implicated And the manager as well were each given bonus checks equivalent to about $20,000 in today's money uh, for not participating. Um, And what I think is interesting about that is like it's another step toward professionalization and rewarding people for doing the Mm -hmm. right thing um, where people, I think, start to say, hey, you know, I have a lot more to lose from trying to fix games than I have to gain because you get this major punishment, you get this ban, you get these fines, you know, and they're just totally disgraced. And then the people who don't participate are heavily rewarded. And so you really do start to see the MLB coalescing as this professional organization that's really going to take people to task, take the players to task, and to really discourage monetarily discourage anybody from cheating and reward people who aren't can't so that's bonuses to people who don't take steroids,
0: right? Well, <laughs> right. Um, so I guess a certain player for the St. Louis Cardinals and a certain former player for the Giants would not be able to take that money then. Um, so you've got that that history, but many historians who look at baseball argue there's a parallel history going on. Right. Remember, from the late 1870s until 1947. Black players are banned from playing in professional baseball. So they actually form their own leagues. And uh, Rube Foster founds the Negro National League in 1920. Pretty soon after that, you get this Eastern Colored League that gets established as well. And these are collectively called the Negro Leagues. And you end up with a World Series between these teams. Uh, You do actually have a reorganization of the leagues. Uh, There's a a Negro Southern League as well. And what I find is interesting is this, the first professional baseball in the South that's carried out in any kind of organized way is Black.
1: That's not surprising to me, though.
0: So why is that not surprising to you?
1: Well, I mean, if you think demographically, first of all, most mm-hmm. people demographically are living, most black Americans are living in the South still at this time. Right. Um, number two, it is seen as a very Yankee thing to be doing. And I think that a lot of white middle and upper class Southern men are just like, I'm not going to do that Yankee shit. I'm going to sip my sweet tea on my porch and I don't know what to right. do. Um, but like <laughs> it's not seen, it's not seen as something that's a part of their culture. Whereas for black Americans, I think that they would rather identify with something like that. Um, And, you know, like participating in a sport like that, uh, rather than like white middle and upper class, former Confederates, um, who don't have any interest in complying with or participating in that sort of thing, at that moment. I mean, that's not to say that doesn't change, because there are a lot of people who are interested in baseball in the South now. But at that time, I could see where it would be predominantly black Americans, again, number one, because of the demographics, but number two, just the outright rejection of white men of the South of adopting anything Yankee.
0: So why does Major League Baseball, white Major League Baseball desegregate in 1947?
1: I think it has a lot to do with World War II.
0: I think it has everything right? to do with World War II. Yep. World War II devastates devastates Major League Baseball because many of these men actually go off and serve in the military. Yeah. And, and they die. try to – and there's this, So there's this great Madonna movie, Major League.
1: It's a great Madonna movie. And that's A League of Their Own.
0: A, league, Major of their league, own. Is a league of Their Own. Major League is the comedy. That's Look right. Look at
1: me knowing about baseball and baseball movies. Um,
0: no, well, it's movie. been years since I saw the Madonna movie. But A League, a league of, of Their
1: Own. I showed it in a class I taught. Um,
0: Which is the All-American Girls baseball. Softball. No, baseball no, they League they or softball play, League?
1: They played baseball. Okay. Yeah, so do. I mean,
0: this is but this is the thing: is the owners of the major league baseball teams need something for people to go to to occupy these stadiums they've built, so they actually start this all-girl league, and it runs kind of okay during the war. But the minute the men can come back from the war, they like ax the, the women's league. Out,
1: just like in all of the different aspects of the workforce, which we've talked about. But they
0: need something to reattract. Americans back to ballparks. But of course and- I have to
1: point out though that the women's league although there were a lot of very talented players like they did a lot to overly sexualize these women in their uniforms. They had made them play in skirts and it was very much not they were not being respected for their athleticism. It was more like Uh, baseball burlesque of some sort, even though they may not have wanted it to be that for themselves. A lot of men who came and a lot of spectators who came were like ogling these women and were being very disrespectful toward them and not respecting them again as athletes, um, but more as like sex objects. And so I think that that's like a really awful perspective. I mean, that's an awful part of it, in addition to them being pushed out after the men return. But when men return, a lot of them don't. And so it completely, it decimates the league. Mm-hmm. so it's prime for this integration to, to occur.
0: Well, and then you get this very shrewd GM for the Brooklyn Dodgers, Branch Rickey, who looks at white baseball teams struggling to put butts in seats in stadiums. And then he looks at negro league teams where the stadiums are packed and he actually goes to some of these games and he watches the talent particularly a young man named jackie robinson and says that guy would put seats that would fill seats
1: so the thing about jackie robinson though is he's actually not the most talented player in the league but he's got a great on paper story he is he's very good at baseball Mm -hmm. He is um, young and attractive. He's also college educated and a veteran. Mm -hmm. So he's like, this is the ideal person to integrate MLB because he is a war veteran. He's highly educated. He's a good baseball player. Like He's the whole package. He's probably not the best player in the league, but he's really good. And I think that American audiences will accept him if we bring him to the MLB, and and he was right.
0: So, July fifth, nineteen forty seven, uh, Branch Rickey signs Jackie Robinson. Um, and by the following year, the talent just bleeds out of the Negro League. Satchel Paige, along with many other talented players, are snatched up by these former segregated white teams. Now, this is not to say that Jackie Robinson's transition to playing in Major League Baseball, white Major League Baseball, is easy—not um, no, by
1: any stretch. I mean, we are really, you know, um, excited about Jackie Robinson today, and his number has been officially retired. And today on Jackie Robinson Day, all MLB players wear his number, which I believe is forty-two, right? Mm-hmm. Um. And so, yeah, now we venerate Jackie Robinson. But the transition was not easy. Even though he had, like, the best resume and, you know, best on paper guy to integrate the league, he wasn't entirely accepted. And it was an uphill battle for him and for many players who did that really early work of integration. Because you also have to remember that this is is deep in Jim Crow era, in the Mm -hmm. Jim Crow era, where segregation is rampant. And, you know, this is way before the civil rights movement. I mean, it's over a decade before. Um, And so this, you know, that is interesting to me when we think about baseball and American history is like baseball and the MLB end up kind of becoming, and I would say Hollywood too, right? Like entertainment industries become kind of these uh, vectors, I guess, to integrate American society. I think there's a lot to be said about
0: that. That's a great segue because the last thing I want to talk about is we're approaching 55 minutes into the episode is how baseball gets used even from its earliest years to Americanize populations. We decide need to be Americanized.
1: Right. So I mean, the, the historian for the MLB, that's what he says was his ticket to being an American. He's a German immigrant. Mm -hmm. Um, he was, um, you know, he started learning about baseball very young. And he said that the way that he learned about, about baseball, um, or or how he learned how to speak English, excuse me, was reading baseball cards.
0: So one of the elements of my research has to do with baseball teams in the American West yes, and how they're used to Americanize German immigrants Mm -hmm. as well as Indians.
1: Yes. Because it does, it is an American pastime by that point, right?
0: It is, and it's seen as it is seen as a mo- a microcosm of American society. It's very structured, and there are rules, and there's a hierarchy. But at the end of the day, it's very democratic because you need all nine players on the field doing their job for the game for the, it to function properly. But this gets exported overseas as well, and. Two places, well, three places, well, four, five, this is the thing. You can trace wherever the United States has a strong imperial presence or where a country was very cognizant and wanted to replicate American culture by where baseball is popular. So outside the United States, the places baseball is most popular, Mexico, Central America, the Philippines, Taiwan, and Japan. And this has to do with the legacy of American empire or in Japan's case, Japan's very conscious decision to adopt what they viewed as forward-thinking, modern American forms.
1: Yeah, about adopting something that is considered, even though we went back and said, like, you know, this isn't actually uniquely American. It is. I mean, it really is accepted globally as an American sport at this point. And it is a means to kind of adopt American values. And we talk about that all the time right now, you know, all the time we say, it's like, oh, it's American as apple pie, it's American as baseball, right? Like we have all these different ideas. And I think that globally, that is very much an idea. And it, and it's kind of this legacy of American imperialism, too, when you think about um, the Philippines, um, you think about... Um, in
0: Puerto Rico.
1: Yeah, Puerto Rico. And we have so many players who come from these regions. Um, and then also we have a lot of players who come, like you said, from Japan. Um, and that has everything to do with American occupation post-World War II era. hmm
0: Yeah. I mean, it's – so it's it, – I'm not joking when I say baseball is a great entree into understanding the United States from the middle of the 19th century through the 1950s. If you want to understand the United States from about 1850 to 1950, baseball is a great way for you to get into understanding that because it encapsulates so much. It encapsulates issues of racial identity. It encapsulates issues of gender. It encapsulates class issue, industrialization, commercialization.
1: Americanization. uh,
0: Americanization, moral purity.
1: Yeah.
0: It's all there. If they would let me, I would teach a U.S. history class and it would actually be baseball.
1: Well, there's a lot of courses that are taught now about like history of sport in the Mm -hmm. United States. And I think that a lot of the focus is on um, baseball because I taught a writing course about American sport and like culture. and It's funny, like I'm the one teaching this class and I'm like, I don't, this isn't my deal. But like, that's where I learned a lot about this stuff. But um, there's a lot of room to talk about it in a way. So to me, the best way to get students engaged that I've found is if you put anything about war or sex in the course offering, but sport, those classes fill up really quickly because people do have a really strong connection to sport, sporting events, and it really is a looking glass into American society. I would agree with that. Even though this isn't like my favorite topic ever, like it does really cover all the bases. Ha <laughs> ha.
0: <laughs> I see what you did there. It
1: covers the basis of of a lot of American history. You are absolutely right, and so there is a lot to say post World War II about baseball and about you know drug use, et cetera. I mean, there is a whole bunch of stuff we could say, but from the historical aspect of it, I think that, like you said, the eighteen fifty to nineteen fifty era really does encapsulate Americana.
0: It, I think, it does in a way that professional football does not.
1: That's correct. That's correct.
0: And I think one of those is there's is an inherent democrat democratic element of baseball. Think about what equipment you need to play baseball.
1: Well, early on there was none.
0: But just think even today. Yeah. If if I get together with 17 of my friends,
1: <laughs> gosh, you got a whole team of friends to to play baseball, we need a bat
0: and we need some b- balls. We Technically, don't need gloves if we're going to play it like they used to, but the glove is the most expensive thing we're probably going to need. But technically, we could play it with just the bat and a ball and a big open space and something. I remember as a kid when we used to play, we just marked bases with whatever we had around. Like I just, I remember playing with somebody's backpack marking a base at some point, but it's very inexpensive to kind of play it and get the basics of the game down. Think about football. Football is a much more expensive game for for kids particularly to get the equipment they need to learn how to play it. And I think even today there is a stigma about football that baseball does not have. There's a stigma about the violent nest nature of football that baseball does not have that stigma.
1: That's true. Yeah, it is still considered a pretty gentlemanly sport, I think, except when I, they clear the stands, I guess, to beat on each other, which I always enjoy when they clear. Well,
0: that yeah. usually happens in a place that loved that, right?
1: Right. Boston. <laughs> the ba- Boston. Boston's the most. As a,
0: as a Yankees fan, I'm going to pick on Boston quite mm-hmm. a bit. Um, but yeah, this, is, I, this has been fantastic. I love this stuff. Like, this is – there's – Some really good recent work on baseball, if you want to read more. Uh, However, if you really have never watched it and you're interested in baseball and kind of want a masterclass in baseball, the long history of it, Ken Burns' epic –
1: The baseball documentary on PBS.
0: Well, and he actually has a relatively recent addition to it called The Tenth Inning, where he goes back to it and adds this extra episode on. But it really is – It is a better documentary, in my opinion, than the Civil War. I have a beef with Ken Burns' Civil War.
1: Yeah, I love the music.
0: Well, he leaves Black people out of it. He
1: does. And then there's the man who's Mm -hmm. like obsessed. Was it Shelby Foote, who's like a Uh Confederate? And he just is on there, like waxing about the good old days of the Confederacy. I mean, to me, it's a historic piece in that it was made now. Close to thirty years ago, right?
0: No, I think it's early. It's longer than that, right? It
1: was a product of its time. It was
0: in the late eighties. I thought
1: it's. I thought it was in the early nineties. Either way, it's a product of its time. And like, yes, it's it's very very flawed. But the Shelby foot's
0: hilarious in that with his southern accent.
1: Oh my god!
0: You almost expect him to dress like a Kentucky colonel sitting out on the. The porch drink at a minch. He's really talking about it. it.
1: He's really close <laughs> to it. Um, but what I'd like to point out really quick before we finish is that um, the MLB has been canceled by the GOP. So America's pastime, favorite pastime, the thing that's the most American thing about America, baseball has been now canceled oh
0: because they're the they've right. taken because they've removed the all-star game from because they Georgia.
1: removed the all-star game and they're like well it shouldn't be politicized but here's the thing the MLB has always kind of taken uh you know a stance in political uh arenas and they've been a little more progressive than most industries again to integrate baseball in 1947 well before integration takes place in 20 19-
0: years, years almost 20 years. 20 years.
1: The MLB has always taken a more progressive stance, even though there's, there's huge problems, right? I mean, it's not like they're perfect, but like, this isn't the first time that the MLB has taken a progressive stance in American politics. Um, But now the Republican Party has canceled the MLB for moving the all-star game from Atlanta to Colorado.
0: Which is, which sucks for us because we hope we were hoping they'd move it to Petco. Really? There was a rumor early on they were going to move it to Petco. San Diego has a beautiful ballpark. Petco it does, yeah. Park, absolutely gorgeous. And it doesn't snow at Petco Park.
1: Makes it a little more fun.
0: I mean, it won't snow at Coors Field in the middle of July either. I hope but not. My goodness. But, like, there are
1: it would be fun to play at Coors Field because more home runs get hit because of the altitude situation. Watching Mm -hmm. Rocky games is really fun. They're just like knocking them out of the park one after the other.
0: Well, so maybe for games at Coors Field, they need to go back to the old ball, the old dead balls.
1: Oh, my gosh. Wouldn't that be fun (laughs) if they did that? Like just for funsies, like, hey, let's play Massachusetts rules. Let's go back to the spitball. Let's see how this goes. I would
0: watch You end up with some team with half their players injured after it. So.
1: Well, um, thank you for joining
0: us today. We're taking next week off. We're taking a little pause. Hillary and I are getting kind of our schedule for the foreseeable future ironed out, figuring out what we're going to be doing. Um, We have not forgotten our constitutional amendment series. We've also not forgotten the Korean War episode that we've promised, but there's a bunch of other things. Uh, Like we've said before, please... uh, Subscribe if you haven't subscribed. Uh, I know some people have emailed me. They're having trouble finding our older episodes on Apple Podcast. You can always go to our website, unincompletehistory.com, and you can find all of our podcasts there, even our older ones. Um, Send us requests for special episodes. We're always open to those. We also are going to be internationalizing our podcast a lot more after our little break here. Uh, expect to see more world history topics, less of a, a focus on the U S although we will still, as, as an American historians will always come back to the U S somehow.
1: We have to, we have to, we we are going to expand our topics just a little bit here and there. And, um, please, yes, like subscribe, leave comments, interact with the podcast and let us know what you like or don't like. And we are more than happy to tailor it to your liking. That's why we, that's why we do it.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I'm Jeff.
1: And I'm Hillary. Until next time.